0: For more than a hundred years, the distinct character of college sports has been that it's played by students who are amateurs, which is to say that they are not paid for their play. That was counsel for the NCAA during this past summer's monumental U.S. Supreme Court decision, NCAA versus Austin. The NCAA was appealing a collection of prior decisions that affected student-athlete compensation not compensation for player performance on the field, but rather that players be able to be compensated for their likeness off it. Maintaining that distinct character is both pro-competitive because it differentiates the NCAA's product from professional sports and can be achieved only through agreement. At the heart of this appeal is whether NCAA's prohibition on compensation for student-athletes violated antitrust law.
1: It is just the latest iteration of the repeatedly debunked claim that competition will destroy consumer demand for college sports and that the NCAA should have a judicially created antitrust exemption because of an imaginary revered tradition.
0: That was counsel for Alston, which included a group of former student-athletes. Amici on behalf of Alston also added, Amateurism is relevant here only insofar as petitioners can actually show that it increases consumer choice by distinguishing college sports from professional sports. And they made the showings with respect to most of their compensation rules. But as a factual matter, they couldn't make the showing with respect to educational benefits. So there is no pro-competitive justification to deprive student-athletes of the opportunity to obtain those educational benefits through ordinary market competition. We therefore urge the court to affirm. And the court did affirm, unanimously siding with the players. And overnight, essentially forced the NCAA to create a new rule allowing compensation for student-athletes' names, image, and likenesses, effectively opening a gold rush on the college sports landscape. Welcome back to the Podvocate. This is your host, Emmett Harrington. To kick off our new season, I spoke with Loyola Law professor Earl Caldwell about the Alston decision and the new NCAA rule. Professor Caldwell, thank you for being here today. Thank you. I'm glad to be here, Emmett. And Professor, I I know you have an extensive background in sports and entertainment law. And also, in addition to being a professor at Loyola, I understand you are the coach of the sports negotiation team. Is that right? Yes, I am the coach of the sports law negotiation team. And
1: for the past two years, we have participated in the Tulane university school of law
0: competition. And in addition to that negotiation team, you also run the annual different STEM conference. Is that right?
1: Yes, I created what I call the different
0: STEM conference. We know that
1: STEM is science, technology, engineering, and math, but the different STEM is sports, technology, entertainment, and media. And so the conference looks at the intersection of those areas because of course, with sports as entertainment, Uh, It's all media related and you have to have technology to do it. And so each year we bring in a variety of speakers to talk about that. This past year's uh, conference was uh, focusing on uh, diversity and inclusion through sports. So we had the general counsel from the Arizona Diamondbacks, uh, an attorney here in Chicago who previously worked for the uh, NCAA, um, uh, a CEO who is in LA doing entertainment related stuff, but part of that work can concern sports. So uh, a nice resource for that. And then we had uh, our own uh, Dean Goff, who uh, we're so sad that she's retiring and leaving us, but um, in her role as uh, uh, Assistant Dean of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion. But prior to that, she was in in sports and entertainment as well when she practiced. it was a real nice panel to give the students and participants just a real nice perspective. So that's what we try to do with the different STEM conference on an annual basis to uh, add to and, and provide insight for the students.
0: I like that. I think there's definitely a overlap between sports, entertainment, and technology. And I think it segues nicely into what I want to talk about today. And that's NCAA's new name, image, and likeness rule, or NIL rule, as it's been abbreviated. Um, As we all know, before this past summer, student athletes were not allowed to be compensated in any form as they were amateur athletes. But now, seemingly overnight, uh, this past summer, that all changed, and that changed on the heels of the Alston versus NCAA opinions. Is that right, Professor?
1: Yes. Well
0: the Austin case is really one of
1: many cases in this this space. There have been any number of players who have been filing suits against the NCAA in reference to trying to uh, get more benefits to be able to get paid to to get uh, equal compensation or some kind of compensation associated with what they're doing. And so this last case, uh, the Austin case that we're referring to was certainly um, an important case because that really opened the floodgates in terms of uh, the NCA uh, changing their rule immediately, post-haste. I mean, once once the Supreme Court came down with the ruling, uh, I think it was the next day or two that the NCA uh, changed their uh, their rule on it. But essentially, since we want to talk about just a little bit about the legal case of it, the, the issue um, with, with the Austin case had to do primarily with certain benefits that uh, schools are allowed to give the players. Part of the ruling in terms of the NCAA it being in violation uh, from the Sherman Antitrust Act in that, narrow, in that narrow issue led the way for the NCAA to say, okay, we need to uh, expand it for NIL and that sort of thing. But NIL was not specifically at issue in the Austin case. So I just want to make sure that uh, our uh, non- Uh, legal or law student listeners who might be listening understand that that was not at issue, but uh, the way it was structured, it impacted NIL and let the the NCAA to
0: do what they did. Right. And it it seemed like the NCAA was asking for some sort of deferential treatment from the court, which they ultimately did not get. But do you believe they had a valid point that there was something unique about the NCAA and protection of amateurism to alter that traditional method of analysis applied for antitrust violations?
1: Well, this thing called amateurism, you ask, well, is the NCAA being reasonable in trying to have that construct and and how they're doing their business? Well, perhaps in 20th century, in the 1900s, when college sports wasn't structured and, and wasn't it doesn't have the same sort of involvement and impact as it does now. But in the 21st century, and really in the late 20th century, it's a billion dollar business. Let me repeat that. The NCAA, prior to COVID, of course, generated billions of dollars through sports, through television, uh, rights, fees, merchandising, and everybody in that supply chain The NCAA itself, the schools, the coaches, programs benefited from those billions of dollars, but the student athletes who were generating that money. The other side of that is, well, you're getting a free education, and that should be enough. Well, yes and no, because if we look statistically about how many athletes graduate uh, after they're done with their eligibility, uh, that 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 percentage is probably in the fifties or so, maybe between the forties and sixties, depending on the school. So, are they really getting that free education for their services? And so, you know, that is a, another conversation for another day. But we recognize that that's part of uh, what the NCAA is talking about. But it just seems to me that uh, an enterprise that's generating billions of dollars and uh, a, a student, for example, if you, uh, Emmett, you know, you are an athlete and I took you out to Mickey D's, to McDonald's to buy you something to eat because you didn't have any money, that could be a violation of the NCAA rules. That just doesn't make sense. It's a billion dollar enterprise. Coaches are getting seven figures and eight figures. Other folks are making money, but Somebody who's playing the game can't get something to eat. It just doesn't make sense. Now, if the NCAA had been a little bit more reasonable in how they structured it, if they had struck some other balance with, okay, here's some avenue for student athletes to get some remuneration or something above and beyond, there could have been a different outcome.
0: Yeah, it it does seem like there should have been a, a, a different outcome within the last 30, 40 years that we've been talking about paying student-athletes. This, I guess you could call it a free market approach that the NIL rule allows. It's been talked about for decades and it, it seems a little overdue in my mind. Uh, you use the term opening the floodgates to describe this this NIL rule where agents and social media ambassadors were, were reaching out to student-athletes overnight. Have you noticed a similar change in uh, the sports law and sports entertainment field since this NIL rule took effect? Absolutely. Uh, The way I
1: speak on it, it's it's the wild, wild west. Because one of the things that the NCAA wanted was the government to come up with some federal rules to standardize whatever this looks like, as opposed to them doing it themselves. Um, And that has not happened. There's certainly been some senators and and, and, and Congress uh, people uh, talking about that, but nothing has happened. So uh, as we speak Emmett, there are no uniform rules on name, image, and likeness. Every state has their own rule. And so that's what it is. Uh, Some are uh, more liberal, some are more conservative. For example, uh, like in Georgia, uh, some of that money that the athlete might get from NIL can be shared either with the school or with some, some other uh, entities. And so that, that's a different approach versus, versus uh, California, which, which doesn't have something like that, I believe. And so what you're finding is each state is creating and crafting their own rules related to NIL based on how they think it fits best for, uh, for them. It, it, it seems to me part of that is about the competitive balance, because if you in uh, another state don't have NIL, why would me, a college student that is going to play in Division One? why would I come to your school when I can't make money off of my NIL, where I can go to another school in California or Texas or, or New York or Maryland, whoever has those rules? So to me, the way all of this will play out over time is uh, you will have A-listers, in uh, this NIL game. And who are the A-listers? We already know. The Power Five conferences, top athletes, Chris Alave, uh, the quarterbacks. Those folks will be courted by the Nikes of the world, the McDonald's of the world, the Creative artist Agency, CAA, which is a large organization that represents actors and athletes and talent. The top tier, the A-listers are going to be okay because they're gonna have the top advertising, branding, marketing, uh, sponsorship people vying for their services. Then you have, let's go down to like the C-level. Here you have some local student athletes. Now they weren't at the top tier, but they would probably be able to monetize their popularity with a gas station or a car wash or a local sandwich shop whereby their name, image, and likeness to be used at that local level. So even though we think about name, image, and likeness at at, at the highest level, this opens up for your, your swimmer or your volleyball player or your golfer who is popular in his, her, or their particular area. And there's a local sponsor who would want to work with them. The NIL ruling now gives them the opportunity to monetize their popularity. Now, will it be the same as the the SEC top tier, the Big Ten top tier athletes? No, but it's still an opportunity to uh, generate some revenue based on their talent, their ability in their area. And so that to me is a good thing. And and I think that's part of what's, uh, that's not really talked about because everybody's so concerned about the, 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 the A-listers, but the A-listers are going to be fine. What about everybody else who needs some understanding and some education on what this is, how they can use it to benefit themselves, even if it's a smaller content?
0: Right. So, so it benefits the A-listers, but for the, the smaller schools, I'm thinking there's local fan bases that want to attract athletes that would otherwise not be major standouts at those Alabamas. Do you see like this this being a benefit for the smaller school in any way? Or is it really just the rich getting richer?
1: No, I, I think that, look, the rich are always going to get richer. Right. Let's just, I mean, let's be honest about what that is. That, that will happen. But there is an opportunity for everybody else. Now that opportunity may look different based on who it is. So is there an opportunity for a smaller school? Absolutely. But remember, that smaller school would not get that that top athlete anyway. So for example, Emmett, you may be, uh, you might be in that second tier uh, and Alabama wants you to come and you'll be behind whoever the starter is. Now, being in that program, great experience, great exposure, great networking, but you, you know you probably won't play unless somebody gets injured before you. Versus if you go to a, a, a smaller school and you now become that big fish at the smaller school because they have all of their resources because they have their alumni support, uh, their alumni are in businesses in the community. And so you get a different type of experience. Is it as large as would it would have been at Alabama? Probably not, but is it robust? Are you getting uh, quality networking opportunities and, and making money off your name, image and likeness? Absolutely. And so I think it depends on what is more suitable for you. Would you rather be in that big market sitting behind somebody or be in a smaller market being a star? And so I think those opportunities present themselves, but it gives the student athletes a choice on what they want to do and how they want to
0: pursue it. Right. And it it seems like uh, we talked briefly about how this is there's not really a national ruling. It's really state by state, and it even goes lower than that. It goes school by school. Uh, I, I saw Loyola has their own rule on name, image, and likeness. And it just seems like they can be compensated for any brand aside from one that Loyola would, would deem detrimental to, the, to their own brand, like gambling, sports betting, controlled substances, stuff like that. Um, are you aware of any disclosure requirements that uh, have been imposed by the NCAA or statewide?
1: I don't know about that. I know one of the things that I'm doing generally is, is, is wanting to uh, compile uh, various and sundry NIL information. And so that's a, a work in progress. But I don't know when you say a disclosure requirement, not so much a disclosure. I know that, as you said, if you can't get a sponsor that the school already has, um, that's one level. Uh, then a second level is that, yeah, detrimental, moral clause. So um, then if they have their own particular caveat to something else, but then that's generally, you know, uh, uh, what the foundation is to then let it happen. Now, each institution or state might have their own process about, okay, how do you go about that? Some do's and don'ts, some procedures you have to do, or compliance matters. But um, in terms of the rules themselves, they, they they tend to talk about not being detrimental to the school, not, you know, not conflicting with somebody that they already have, but then other than that, you're, you're free to do it within some other guidelines in terms of, you know, how that looks kind of thing. So, uh, but I, I'm looking forward to, uh, as I dig more into that, get a more comprehensive understanding of how uh, different states and different organizations, education, educational institutions
0: are approaching that moving forward. Um, do these schools that have NIL rules, do they have any agents to help these student athletes navigate this, this brand new field?
1: Yeah, see that. Um, well, yeah, I would say the schools themselves don't have agents, but I, I think that's part of why there, there has to be a, a mechanism for education for the non-a uh, listers, because the a listers are going to have uh, the right. top talent, lawyer. They're, they're going to have the people there giving them the information. Anybody at Alabama, uh, Michigan, uh, Ohio State, <laughs> Michigan. You know, really the Big Ten. They're going to have Northwestern. Rest assured, they have um, teachers, educators, consultants, alumni giving their students the information about the do's and the do's and so on and so forth. Yeah, you know, what about uh, uh, somebody at Loyola? Do they have that same level of information or some of the schools that your schools competed with? Would they have that same level of information? Uh, let's go you know, up north in the northern suburbs or, or, or the southern suburbs. Do, do they have that information? Probably not. And so I, I think it's important that, that there be uh, that information that's organized so that folks who might not generally be in the upper tier to have access to it, has it because
0: uh, people need to know. Yeah, people do need to know. And student athletes specifically need to know how this NIL rule affects them before they start benefiting from it. I think one obvious issue, some, some sort of tax consequences of these benefits that student athletes are getting. Do you see any other issue related to NIL rule just outside of sports?
1: Well, we know that Uncle Sam is going to get his money. Yep. So, and again, at the at the A list level, they're being advised, I imagine, based on the tax implications at a much much higher and more sophisticated level that uh, a smaller school and smaller organizations provide or offer. Again, that's part of really financial literacy. And we know that, well, you may not know, but I know because teaching in it that that's not a subject that is taught as universally as it should in our educational system. And so it's important for uh, those student athletes to get some level of financial literacy associated with that. Uh, and part of that financial literacy would, would be tax implications and And savings and investing and building wealth and that sort of thing too. So yes, you're you're on it that there's this tax implication dynamic, but to me, it's really more uh, of a financial literacy play because uh, taxes are just one facet of the financial dynamics that go on that a student athlete getting money has to consider and be mindful of.
0: Right. And, And these issues will come up, I'm sure, within the next year or so. It really is the wild, wild west, as you said earlier. What's the final takeaway from this?
1: I I think that it's a positive because the student athletes who are the main reason for the NCA having generated billions of dollars to fund all of the things that have happened are now have an opportunity to participate in in the revenue pie. Uh, And I think that is a good thing. What we don't know is what that's going to look like in one year, three years, five years, 10 years, because every state has their own rule in making it. There's no federal law to kind of give guidance or perspective. And so I I think for a number of years, um, you will see ebbs and flows based on what's going on in different states and different schools and that sort of thing. And I think eventually there will get some uniformity, whether the NCAA decides to do something or there's an organization that's formed of top schools or or what have you. But uh, I don't know when it will change, but I think it will because I think folks want to have some sort of foundation for everybody to play on and and, and work with. Um, And as I said, I think it's good that uh, in the NIL, it opens up for people, the A-listers, the B-listers, the C-listers, the D-listers, to, to leverage that. And, and now remember, see, the NIL, name, image, and likeness, is applicable to artists, to musicians, to other students who are in school that can leverage their talent for money. We're talking about sports because you know that's the thing, but there are really broader applications to NIL uh, for other people to benefit, and that's why I think it's good because it's really allowing a lot more people, a lot more students, the opportunity to to generate some revenue uh, based on their talents uh, while they're in school.
0: And it also probably generates some revenue for lawyers who are in the sports and entertainment field. Uh, Do you have any advice for law students who are interested in working on that legal side of the sports and entertainment? Yeah,
1: I I think that like anything, if if you are interested uh, in sports and entertainment, Uh, You have to be involved. You have to make a conscious decision to do that, to network, to meet people, and to learn. Sports and entertainment is not like if you want to uh, go after you graduate from law school and you want to work at a firm. You know how to uh, identify firms in different states based on what they do. Uh, the practice area that you might want to go in. Sports and entertainment isn't as direct in terms of getting there, even though, sure, we know, okay, the Chicago Blackhawks, the Chicago Bears, we know those teams are there, but how, how is it that you get a job at the executive level or administrative level, management level in one of those? And that is not so straightforward. That's where it comes into networking and knowing folks and building relationships and being involved in activities to get you noticed. Uh, and so uh, you have to be involved um, and, and actively pursue that if you're a, a law student or any other student interested in sports and entertainment, because uh, it's not as straightforward as some of the other areas uh, in the profession that you
0: can pursue. Professor Caldwell, thank you for joining us today. Oh, it was my
1: pleasure, Emmett. Anytime, uh, keep up the good work.
0: That's all from us here at The Podvocate. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Visit our website at thepodvocate.com for more information on the episodes and our guests. The Podvocate is produced by WLUW, the student-run independent radio station broadcasting from the School of Communication at Loyola University Chicago. From Loyola University Chicago, School of All, this has been The Podvocate.